0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Jordan, and I am one of the pastors here at e Welcome to everybody here in the auditorium. Welcome to everybody over in the venue, and welcome to anybody watching online. So glad you could all join us together today. So we are continuing our series in the Minor Prophets Major Message by looking at the prophet of Zechariah this morning. Um, as we do that, would you think about our world for a moment? Um, my guess is that you're like me and you think of the world as amazing. There's a lot of amazing things that exist in our world, a lot of amazing places, amazing people. There's a lot of good that exists in our world, but there's also a lot of brokenness, that it doesn't take long to figure out that there's brokenness in our world, whether you see it on the news or whether you hear about it in someone else's family or you experience it in some way, shape, or form in your family, that brokenness exists. So my guess is that you, like me, are trying to make a difference, that you want to make the world a better place, that you want to impact the world for good. And so you try to do that, whether it's through your parenting, whether it's maybe the sibling that you are, maybe it's where you volunteer, where you give your time to, maybe it's the kind of neighbor you try to be or the kind of coworker you try to be or what you do for a job, that you're trying to make a difference in the world. And if you're like me, there's moments when you wonder, am I making a difference? That, am I making a difference in the lives of my kids? When I, I want to pray with them and they're climbing all over the place. Like, is this really making a difference in their life? Or I'm trying to read the Bible with them and they're making fart noises. Like, is this really making a difference in their lives? Just my house? Maybe it's just my house. Or maybe it's you really want to share the gospel with your neighbor, but you just feel like they just don't really. Are they really really going to be interested? Are all my efforts to try and be a good neighbor to them, is it making any difference? Or maybe it's where you volunteer. So I have the joy of working with middle school and high school students. I love working with middle school and high school students. I am so grateful that I get to do it. But there are some nights, if you've worked with middle school and high school students at any point in any time, that you wonder, if I had talked to houseplants, would they have listened better than these middle school students? Or or you wonder, like, if we had small group with cats, would they have sat more still than my middle school boys? Like, did they really get anything? And you know at the end of the day, it's not true. When you go home, you know, like, like God's using it, but you really wonder, like, is this making a difference? Am I impacting the world for good, or am I just wasting my time? And in Zechariah, we're going to wrestle with this concept, because Zechariah and the Israelites are going to be rebuilding the temple, and there's this grumbling underneath of, does it matter? Like, if we rebuild this temple, does it matter? Is this really making a difference in the world? And what we're going to see is that God is going to send some some visions to Zechariah, who's a messenger on behalf of God, to let them know that he wants them to join God in celebrating small acts of faithfulness. That he wants them to not look down on these small acts of faithfulness, but instead they should be celebrating them. They should be going, yes! These little acts of faithfulness are making a difference. These are great. These are worthy to be celebrated. And so that's what we're going to see as we dig into Zechariah. So let me pray, and then we will uh, flip to Zechariah. Father God, I thank you uh, for all of these men and women and children here in the auditorium, over in the venue, and online today. God, would you use your word in a powerful way to shape us? God, I pray for those people that are weary, that maybe it's the mom or it's the dad who'd been trying and been praying and been hoping and it just seems like there's not any fruit. Or God, maybe it's the person who's been volunteering and they've been praying for a student or praying for a kid or a guy or a woman for them to get it and it just seems like they haven't. God, would you please encourage them, would you strengthen them? God, for those people that may have given up, that maybe they're here, but they just feel like, this doesn't really make that big of a difference. God, I, I pray that you would break through their cynicism. God, you would break through their sorrow. And God, you would get underneath that and root it out and replace it with this celebration, this rejoicing that you have over these small acts of faithfulness. God, would you help me to be clear and concise this morning? I pray this all in your son's name, amen. All right, so we're going to be in Zechariah chapter four. So the easiest way to find it is to just turn in your table of contents and then find the page number and go that way. Uh, but if you want to use my not yet patented foot method, you can look for Matthew. And then once you find Matthew, flip back to the left and you'll find Malachi and then Zechariah. Okay, so as you're flipping there, to chapter 4, verse 1, I want you to know that if you were here last week for Haggai, Zechariah and Haggai are co workers, that they are working on behalf of God at the same time period in the same place, trying to accomplish similar things. So if you're like, this sounds really familiar, it's because you heard it last week to some extent. But we're going to focus on a different part this morning, but there's a lot of overlap between Charles' message last week, which he did a great job with. And then this message this week. So God's people go into exile because they have been committing acts of idolatry where they have not been undivided in their heart to God. And then also they have been committing acts of injustice. They haven't been doing what was right in God's eyes. They have not been keeping the covenant and been faithful to uphold their part of that. And so God sent them into exile. So the northern kingdom goes into exile first and they're in exile for about 200-ish years. And then the southern kingdom, they go into exile second, and they're in exile for about seventy years. So the they, um, the southern kingdom is conquered by Babylon or Babylonia. Babylon, sorry, and they go to Babylonia. And then Babylon is conquered by the Persians, and the Persians say, "Hey, we don't want you guys here anymore. If you guys want to go back to Jerusalem, you guys can go back." And so, about forty-two to fifty thousand of them return. To Jerusalem and they are led by the high priest whose name is Joshua and then the Israelite governor whose name is Zerubbabel and he is kind of functioning as the highest governmental authority so he's kind of close to being their king though he's not their king because the king of Persia is their king and he's working underneath him to do what the king of Persia wants him to do in Jerusalem and so they begin to rebuild the temple and they begin to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. They rebuild the altar, they begin to set the foundations for the temple, they start working on the walls, and the, their enemies that surround them around Jerusalem are going, we don't want you guys to have walls. So they send a letter to the king of Persia and say, hey, king, you know these Israelites, they're rebuilding their walls, you don't like that. Like, go look in your history books. When you find out that they have walls around the city, you're gonna find out they don't pay their taxes. They're really bad. And so you don't want them to have walls. You need to stop them building these walls. And so the king of Persia has his guys look in their history books and he says, you're right, we don't want them to have walls. So he sends ambassadors to go back and say, hey, stop building the walls. So they keep building the temple, but it's like this 20-year period where they start and they stop and they start and they stop. And then their enemies around them go, we don't want them to build this temple either. So they send another letter to the king of Persia and say, hey, you don't want them to build a temple. Like, look what happens when they have a temple here. Things don't go well. Well, the Israelites send a letter with that letter that says, hey, the, other, the former king in Persia wanted us to rebuild this temple. You should look into that. And so it's a long distance for letters. They don't have email. It doesn't just like instantaneous get a response. You know how government is. So it takes a while. So they send this off. And they're waiting for a response. And so while they're waiting, they keep working. But I think there's this low grumbling of like, does this matter? Are they going to show up like they did before? And they're going to tell us to stop. This isn't great. So into this in Zechariah 4, God begins sending visions. And so we're going to pick it up after he's received a few different visions. Sorry. All right, Zechariah 4 verse 1. It says, then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. So the Bible scholars are divided here. So there's one group of them that says, like he's literally asleep. Like he's been receiving visions and he's been seeing them and then he's so exhausted by all the things that he's seen that he's fallen asleep. And so the angel was literally waking him up. But another group of Bible scholars are saying, no, we think what's happening is that he's so overwhelmed By how awesome this stuff is, he's like zoned out. And the angel's like, hey, dude, wake up. Like, focus. I have more stuff to show you. And so either way, the angel has something he wants to show him. Verse 2. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left so he begins to explain what he sees and what he sees is two olive trees on either side and then in between them is this golden lampstand so we have this illustration of what it might have looked like so two olive trees and then in the middle you have this lampstand that they have wicks so those have candles on them but it would have wicks and the oil goes in there and then what happens is they light it And so he hasn't totally um, unwrapped everything in this yet but he is, I'm going to get there so he says in verse four, it says, I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. So he says, this is the message that I want you to take to Zerubbabel. Who, remember, is the governor over the Israelites, that he's the closest thing they have to a king. And he says, I want you to go to him and say to him, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And he says, what are you, mighty mountain? He says, before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he'll bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. So what the angel was saying, is that Zerubbabel is going to complete the temple. So the capstone is the last stone that you would put on a building before it was finished. He says he's gonna bring it out, he's gonna put it on there, and there's gonna be shouts of God bless it, God bless it from the crowd as he finishes it. And so he wants them to know that, I know there's this letter out there you guys are worried about, I know you think the Persians are gonna shut you down, they're not gonna shut you down. Zerubbabel is gonna complete this in his lifetime. He says, I know this seems like, this is a mighty mountain. This seems like a huge mountain to climb, a huge thing for you to accomplish. He says, but that's not the case. He says, with me, it's gonna become like level ground. He says, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. So the Bible scholar, Warren Rearsby says, the word might refers to military might, what people can do together. But the remnant or the group of Israelites that had returned, they didn't have an army. Power refers to the strength of the individual, but Zerubbabel's strength was no doubt waning. And so Zerubbabel is sitting there trying to build the temple and he's going, we don't have this mighty army. We don't have this mighty construction force. He says, I don't don't have the cleverness to do this. I don't have the wisdom to do this anymore. I don't have the energy to do this. I am tired. This feels like this is mighty mountain. And God sends this angel to Zechariah to say to Zerubbabel, it's not by might, It's not by the number that you have that you're gonna be successful. It's not by your individual cleverness that you're gonna be successful. It's by God's spirit, by my spirit being with you. And so this leads us to our first takeaway this morning. God's work is not accomplished by might or by power, but by God's spirit. God's work is not accomplished by might or by power, but by God's spirit. So you think throughout the Bible, there's all these moments where God's spirit accomplishes great things, where it might seem like it's an individual, but really it's, it's God's spirit working through them or working around them. So you think about when Moses uh, parts the Red Sea. So God rescues his people, frees them from slavery, They are marching off into the wilderness. They get to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is behind them. The Egyptian army decides they're going to destroy the Israelites. They chase them towards the Red Sea. And now they're like, what are we going to do? We have the Red Sea behind us. We have an army in front of us. What are we going to do? And so God says, Moses, walk out there and put your staff in the water. He walks out there, puts his staff in the water, and the sea parts. And then the Israelites walk through on dry ground. The Egyptian army chases them into the Red Sea And then God's spirit brings the water back down onto the Egyptians. And so God rescues his people, defeats an entire army without his people having to raise a sword or a spear. But it's by God's spirit that they accomplish these things. So for us, I think really what's so important here is there's a lot of times that God calls us to do things that we say, well, I don't don't have the ability to do that, God, or I don't have enough people to do that, or I don't have the cleverness to do that. Like, oftentimes, I think people wrestle when God says, I want you to share the gospel with this person or that person. We go, I I don't know how to do that, God. And God said, well, just tell them your testimony. Just tell them how you came to trust and know me. He's like, well, but then what if they ask me these questions? Like, I don't know the answers to their questions. Like, they're going to say this. I don't know what to do. Like, I just don't, I have the cleverness to really share the gospel with those people. And God's sitting here going, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit working through you that I'm going to accomplish my work in your life. That maybe it's prayer, and you go, man, like, I, I know I should pray with my kids, but like outside of my mealtime prayer of, like, God, thank you for this food, like, I just don't know how to pray with my kids. Like, I don't have the cleverness to know how to do this. Like, I'm going to say the wrong things. I'm going to do the wrong things. And training is great. But God is saying, you have what you need. Because it's not by might or by power. It's by my spirit working through you that you're going to accomplish my work in your life. So let me go on, verse 8. It says, then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things, since the seven eyes of the Lord that reigns throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel? Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, What are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, Do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord in all the earth. So he begins to explain more of what he sees. So he says, there's two olive trees on either side, and then out of these olive trees come these gold pipes that are pouring golden oil into the gold lampstand so that they continually refill so that they ever run out of oil and they don't run out of light. And he says that each of these two trees are the two that God's anointed. So Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor. He says, I have anointed these two people to lead my people for this time so that they can rebuild the temple, and this temple is going to be a light to all the nations. That this temple is going to get renovated, but eventually this will be the temple that Jesus is dedicated in. This will be the temple where Jesus goes to the courts and he flips over tables where he teaches that all people can come to him. So he's this light for the world. And so he says, through them, I'm going to fill them with my spirit to do what I'm calling them to do so that my my task will be accomplished of rebuilding the temple. So now we're going to spend the rest of our time in verse 10. So he says here, who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that reigns throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hands of Zerubbabel. He says, Who dares despise the day of small things? And you're like, what is, like Who are these people despising them rebuilding the temple? Like, this seems like a big deal. Why is anybody despising them rebuilding the temple? And That's a fair thing because I think we look at it and we say, this is a big deal, and it is. But if you think about it from their context, they're going, like, what, is this really that important? So think about this. They are a conquered people living in a conquered country, and they are very small compared to their conquerors. They have no king. They live in a city without walls, and we're like, our city doesn't have walls, no big deal. But in this time period, walls was like, the only way you defended yourself, the only way you could have a sense of security. So they don't have any walls. Persians told them they can't rebuild the walls. They live in this uh, country that used to be theirs, that God had promised to them. And they had, at one point, when King Solomon was reigning, they, like, ran most of the known world, probably, in that region. And they're going, like, really, is it that big of a deal if we have a temple Like, if we finish this, like, we're not gonna have a king. We're we're not gonna get the country back. We're not gonna have an army to overthrow the Persians. Like, we're still gonna be small. Like, is this really that big of a deal? Is it really gonna make that much of a difference? And so people are grumbling. But then on top of that, there is most likely a handful of people that would have seen the previous temple. And the previous temple, like, Solomon spared no expense. Like, he was ruler of the most of that known part of the world, so he had lots and lots of resources. People brought stuff to rebuild the temple, and so they had all that they needed in an abundance of what they needed. They had all the labor that they needed. They had armies to rebuild this. And so when they rebuilt the temple, they didn't have any of those things, and so it's not as grand as Solomon's. So there's people that are sitting there going, man, yeah, this temple's great and whatever, but this is not as good as as Solomon's temple. Back in the day, Solomon had a temple. And so the idea is that there's these good old days. And back in Solomon's day, when we ruled the known empire, that was the good old days. But now, like, man, is really God still with us? Has God abandoned us? Like, is really God doing anything good anymore? And we can look at this and say, man, those silly Israelites. But the reality is we struggle with this too. At least I struggle with this where there's moments and times where I can overlook what God is doing and I can despise or at the very least look down upon small acts of faithfulness and go, God, like, is this really that big? Like, look, look what you were doing back in the Bible. Like, people would preach and, you know, 5,000 people would come to trust and believe in you. Or, like, think about, you know, the Great Awakening when, like, one guy would preach and, like, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 people might try to come and hear. Like, really, like, is this... Where is that now? Or if you wanna go closer, like there was a, a lot of points when COVID was at its height, where there was a lot of days where I was like, man, if I could just get back to 2019. I guess back to 2018. Back to the good old days when there was always toilet paper on the shelf. Or back to the good old days when I could make a plan and then we could go through with that plan despite my kids having the sniffles. Like, I just want to get back to those good old days. Or if I want to look at it spiritually, like God did a number of amazing things in my life when I was in college ministry. Like college ministry is when I began to really take God seriously and take my faith with Jesus seriously. And I was surrounded by people that loved Jesus and wanted to grow. And so there was a lot of awesome things that were happening. And so there's moments and times where if I'm not careful, I can think of college ministry as the good old days when God was doing great stuff in my life, but man, I peaked spiritually in college. And now it's just kind of riding it out. And I do not want to live thinking that I peaked in college or I peaked at some point in the past and I just have to ride this out until I die. But instead, what I want to believe is that God is doing great stuff now because he is. And that's what the point he's making. He's saying, I'm doing great stuff because you guys are grumbling because you don't think this temple is as good as what Solomon built, but it's like, you don't understand, God himself is gonna come walk on these stones. Like this temple is gonna be a great temple. Like I'm doing great things and big things and good things. Don't overlook this. Don't look down upon this because you don't understand how great it is. And so I want in my own life to think that the best days are ahead, the best days where God's still gonna do great things is tomorrow and the day after that and a year after that and 10 years after that as long as i have breath in my lungs god is still going to do good things in my life cuz god is not going to waste my life and so he calls them to say hey don't overlook this but instead join god so he says this here verse 10 so he says when for 10 it says since the seven eyes of the lord that reigns throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of zerubbabel Now, you're like, wait a minute, God's got seven eyes? This is news to me. That's not what's going on here. God doesn't have seven eyes. That that is a literary device to say God's perfect omniscience, God's perfect vision. So God sees all places at all times and all things. There is nothing that happens anywhere in creation, anywhere in any place that God does not know what's going on. And he says when God's perfect vision sees the capstone of In Zerubbabel's hand, as he's finishing the temple, God himself is going to rejoice in heaven. So so you too should be rejoicing. You too should be joining in in this celebration. So this is our second takeaway. We should join God in celebrating small acts of faithfulness. We should join God in celebrating small acts of faithfulness. Instead of looking down on these small acts and thinking or saying, does this really matter? We should instead be joining God and celebrating these small acts of faithfulness because God in heaven is celebrating them. So I don't miss this. When you pray with your kids, the God, his seven eyes who are looking for people all over the world, he sees you praying with your kids and he says, that's my daughter praying with my kids. That's, That's my son praying with my kids. He rejoices when he sees you volunteering someplace and you're sitting there with your middle school boys and they're squirreling, they're doing all their things, he's going, that's my son, that's my daughter who's volunteering. When he sees you dumping out goldfish, he goes, that's my son, that's my daughter. He's rejoicing over these things. He's not going, I don't know if that's really gonna matter. He's rejoicing. He's celebrating. When you spend time praying reading your Bible, he's going, yes, I love it when my kids talk to me. I love it when my kids spend time with me. When you walk across the street to share the gospel with a neighbor, when you walk across the cubicle to share the gospel with a coworker, he's rejoicing. He's saying, that's my son, that's my daughter telling somebody about me. He rejoices. These might be small acts to us, but God rejoices over them. He celebrates over them. Now, you may see all this and go, ah, but Jordan. Does that really make a difference still? Like, I know he's rejoicing, and that's great, but like, does it really make a difference? So let me tell you about a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. My guess is most of you don't know Edward because he was alive in 1854. (laughs) So if you do, I'd love to talk with you, but... Edward was a Sunday school teacher in 1854 in Boston, Massachusetts, and he taught high school Sunday school, and there's a 17-year-old boy in his Sunday school class, and this boy was only there because he wanted to work in his uncle's shoe store, and his uncle said, if you're going to work in my store, there's a condition. You have to go to church, that I will not let you work for me unless you go to church, so the boy was like, okay, I'll go to church, so he goes to this Sunday school class so he can keep his job. Well, you may be surprised to know he's not super engaged when he's forced to be there but he's not super engaged and edward sees this boy he comes a few times i don't know how many times he came but he came i would guess pretty regularly and he said that this boy did not seem interested in god did not seem interested in church did not seem interested in any of this he was checking a box to keep his uncle happy so he could keep his job but he felt like god wanted him to go and share the gospel with this boy at the shoe store and I don't know what Edward's like, but if God had said to me, God, he was like, Jordan, I want you to go share the gospel with this person. I'd be like, Really? Like him, God? Like, you, you've seen him in Sunday school. Like, he's not interested. Like, you want me to go to his workplace and do this? Like, I'm going to go in there and invade his space. And he'd be like, What are you doing here? Like, it's enough that I see you one day a week. Like, I don't need to see you. Like, do I really need to, like, this, this is the kid you want me to go talk to? But he goes. And he goes into the back room with a boy's stocking shoes. He begins to tell him that God loves him. God cares deeply about him. God wants to rescue him and to redeem him. He wants to save him from the wrath that he's been storing up through his acts of rebellion, through his acts of saying, I'll do whatever I want to do, God. I don't need you. And ever since when he walked away, he didn't really feel like much had gotten into him. Didn't feel like he had really made a difference. But the boy came to Christ. There was that conversation that led him to say, yeah, I want to surrender my life to Christ. Now, that boy's name is D.L. Moody, which you might not know that name. That may not mean much to you, and that's okay, but what you need to know is that D.L. Moody would move from Boston to Chicago, and in Chicago, he would start his own Sunday school class that would then become a church called the Moody Bible Church, which is still operating today, still a church today that If next week you wanted to go to church there, you could drive to Chicago and go to church there. On top of this church, he also started the Moody Bible Institute, a seminary to train teachers and preachers of the Bible that I have had friends that have attended recently. And then he began to become an evangelist. And he toured the world in the 1800s, sharing the gospel with estimates of 100 million people. And if that's where the story ended, that would be an incredible, incredible amount of fruit from that one act of faithfulness. But the story doesn't end there. So D.L. Moody, in one of his evangelistic outreaches, he shared the gospel with a man named F.B. Meyer, and Meyer, in turn, shared the gospel with a man named J. Wilbur Chapman, and J. Wilbur Chapman surrendered his life to Christ. And then he became a spiritual influence. He discipled a man named Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday then began to uh, become a spiritual influence, a discipler of a man named Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham became a preacher and evangelist, and he shared the gospel with a man named Billy Graham. And Billy Graham would go on to become one of the greatest evangelists of our time, he would also become the spiritual advisor to every president, from President Truman to President Obama, and he would be viewed as America's pastor. But even beyond that, my guess is there are people in this room that if I asked you to stand up, which I won't, but if I asked you to stand up, there'd be people in this room that would say, My grandparents came to faith at a Billy Graham crusade. Or my mom or my dad came to faith at a Billy Graham crusade, or through a Billy Graham televangelist. Events, or my aunt or my uncle who shared the gospel with me. And you can trace it back to a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball through one small act of faithfulness going to talk to a 17-year-old kid that he was like, does this kid really interested in God? But God, you call me to do this, and I'm going to do it. And so it's never just one act of faithfulness, but it's acts upon acts upon acts that God stacks over time to change the world. Because I totally believe that God has used those different preachers and teachers to make an impact on the world. So I don't know, when Edward Kimball died, if he had even the foggiest idea of how God was gonna use his little act of faithfulness to change the world to impact people in Kearney, Nebraska in the year 2022. But this is how God works. He takes our little acts of faithfulness and he multiplies them. And he works them together so that the world is changed person by person, slowly over time. And so maybe you've wondered, does it matter if I pray with my kids? Does it really make a difference? Yes, it does. Does it matter if I I read the Bible with them when they're crawling all over the place? Like, is really anything getting in there? Yes, it does. Like, does it matter if I go share the gospel with my neighbor that they seem super not interested in? Is it really gonna make a difference? Yes, it does. You have no idea how God might use that small act of faithfulness to put a rock in someone's shoe that they step on for 20 years of like, man, I had this neighbor that they were great and they shared the gospel with me. I wouldn't call it the gospel. They told me about Jesus. And for 20 years, I couldn't, I couldn't shake this, this Jesus that they told me about. And at one point in time, they begin to trust and begin to say, no, I really do want to surrender my life. And it started through one small act of faithfulness when you cross the street. And so we should join God in celebrating small acts of faithfulness. So as we close, I want to ask you, is there any place that you failed to celebrate or you've looked down upon these small acts of faithfulness that you're going to say, God, I'm sorry. God, I've, I've said that these things are too small for me to think that they can make a difference. Or I just haven't seen this immediate fruit that I was hoping to see and so I'm discouraged. Or perhaps you gave up. That I know it's hard. I know that there are times when it feels like, man, this, is, this isn't making a difference. There are times that the Israelites wanted to give up building the temple. They're just like, is this really going to make a difference? But they could not see what, all the things that God could see. They're not gonna, they could not see the ending where Jesus Christ, God in human form, walks into there to declare that the days they had longed for when the Messiah was going to return was going to happen. And God used their little acts of faithfulness to prepare the temple for that day. And so God will use our little acts of faithfulness to change the world person by person, moment by moment, in these little places, in these little times. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your love and your goodness. God, thank you that you use our little acts of faithfulness to make a big difference. God, we confess to you that there's been too many times and we've just said, does this really matter? And we've lost heart or we've become cynical. God, I I pray that you would break through our cynicism. And God, I pray that you would help us to be strengthened in our hearts to keep doing small acts of faithfulness. God, that we return to you, believing that God, that you might do things hundreds of years now through the things that we do now that the ripple effect of what we do now, it might still be affecting people hundreds of years from now. God, we may never know all the things you accomplish through us sharing the gospel with one other person or through us discipling our kids or discipling other people. But God, we want to be faithful to you. And God, we want to join you in celebrating Because it says, God, that when you see these small acts of faithfulness, you rejoice. You delight in your children as they do these things. And so, God, I pray that we would hear your delight. We would hear your voice celebrating as we do these things. And we would join in the celebration. pray this all in your son's name. Amen.